Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, grace and peace is yours. Grace and peace is the message of Good Friday. A lot of people do not realize this, but if you add up all the words in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 35% of the words are about the last week of Jesus' life. That tells you something. God had those four men write the story of Jesus' life and to write it the way that they did so that when you read it for thousands of years, the church reading it would meditate on the life of Christ in the way that God would want them to by just the virtue of the fact of what's there in print. Of that 35% that is about the last week of Jesus' life, most of it is about the last 24 hours. For many centuries, it has been called the passion of Christ, an old word meaning suffering. It's fitting in our worship of Jesus that we would, if we're going to follow a church calendar that follows the life of Christ, that on that week before we celebrate Easter, the resurrection of Christ, and on that Friday when we think again about the day that Jesus died for us, that we would, when we get together as people of God, spend time meditating, thinking about, listening to His suffering and His passion. Tonight on Good Friday is not a night for us to talk about how good we want to be for Jesus. How to be big for God. Tonight is about looking at how big Jesus was. For every single human being, including you and me. So tonight, what I'm going to do with you is I'm going to tell you the passion of Jesus. That's really about all I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you the story. Blending Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's account. Starting on Thursday evening after the Lord's Supper. You see, that Jesus went into Jerusalem on Thursday from the east side. He came across a little valley called the Kidron Valley, probably went to the Western Hill, and there in somebody's home in an upper room, he celebrated the Jewish Passover in which he gave us the Lord's Supper, the bread and wine, which are his body and blood for the forgiveness of our sins. Before that supper, he said very soberly to his disciples, he said, one of you that are here will betray me. What he meant was, Hand me over to my enemies when, at a time when I won't be able to get away. He see, he already knew that for 30 pieces of silver, Judas had already made an agreement on Tuesday evening. Now, this was Thursday that he said this. But on Tuesday evening, Judas had gone to the Jewish leaders because he no longer believed in Jesus. And they counted out 30 pieces of silver. And they gave them to old Judas. And Judas said, now... At a certain time that you and I agree with, I'll tell you how you can find Jesus and arrest him. You see, they didn't want to arrest Jesus when he was in the temple courts teaching because the masses of people believed he was the Jewish Messiah and there would be a riot, a revolt. Instead, they wanted to arrest him, get him in private, interrogate him, and then do press releases to the people. And that way they could make malign Jesus' name and make him look bad so the people would join them in condemning him before the Romans. So that's what they did. And they had a great opportunity with Judas, who'd been stealing money from the disciples because he was the money carrier for the group for several months already. And Judas loved money more than he loved God. And so Judas, for 30 pieces of silver, made an agreement to turn Jesus over. Now, after the Lord's Supper, I told you he was in Jerusalem, Jesus went back out of the city to the east. He went across that little valley up to the Mount of Olives to a garden that he often went to because it was a quiet place to be alone with God, the Father, and with his disciples. It had a name. It was called the Garden of Gethsemane. It's where there was an olive press. There were a lot of olive trees there too. And so... Judas knew about that place because he'd often gone there with Jesus. Jesus was there that night. It was dark. And Jesus knew, even though his disciples were rather unaware that the climax of Jesus' life had come, 
Jesus knew that it had come, and so Jesus was praying to the Father. And you remember his prayer? He prayed off and on for probably at least three hours. And so we're getting close to midnight. And he prayed, Father, if there's any other way that for me to save the world than to go through what I'm about to go through, let's do it that other way. But no matter what, let it be according to your will and not mine. He showed he was truly human. And at the same time, that he was also God and willing to suffer for all people. He would, let, he would perfectly submit to the Father's will, although he didn't want to go through it. God the Father answered no. Not audibly, but Jesus heard it. And so he got up, woke up his disciples who kept falling asleep as he was praying. And he said, here comes my betrayer. Now it was dark. He saw what they could not see, but there were torches coming up the hillside there on the Mount of Olives. And into that little garden walked Judas uh, among the shadows and the torchlight and and a group behind him. And the group behind him were guards from the temple and Roman soldiers with swords and spears and clubs like they were expecting maybe a resistance. Of course, there wasn't going to be one. Jesus said to them, Who are you looking for? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. And the power of his voice knocked them all down. They all fell down on the ground there. And they got up. Have you ever fallen down in front of other adults? It's rather embarrassing. I've done it a few times. And they all got up. And they're trying to gather their composure and their spears and their swords and look so macho. And he just blew them down with his words. And he said, I asked you, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I told you that I'm he. And he said, let these men go. They're not him. It's dark. Judas had made an arrangement. It's going to be dark up there. He said, I'll go and give the oriental kiss of greeting. One on the left cheek, one on the right. When you see me kiss that man, that's the one that you're supposed to arrest. You don't get the wrong guy. So Judas, thinking he's hiding his sinful heart, acting like he's kind of in in trouble with these guys, and they brought him. He comes up to Jesus and says, greetings, rabbi. Kisses him one on the left. And just as he catches that other cheek, Jesus whispers in his ear, Judas, are you going to betray the Son of Man with a kiss? That must have just sent shivers down Judas's spine. Jesus doesn't miss a thing, does he? You're not going to pull one over on the one who can see everyone's heart, thought, word, and deed. He had been telling him, woe to that man. It would be better for him if he'd never been born. Well, Judas had marked the man. They were already frightened. They were in a hurry. So they pushed Judas out of the way. They bound Jesus' arms. Peter ran off. John ran off. Mark ran off. James ran off. All of them running through the trees, heading down the Mount of Olives, trying to find like rats their own private place of comfort. And they left Jesus alone. There was a prophecy that said, I'll strike the shepherd and all the sheep will be scattered. Before they ran off, though, I left something out. Peter thought this is the moment when they bound him. And he thought, I'm going to fight for him. And he had a sword. And he swung at one of the guys that went to bind Jesus. What happened? The guy ducked and he cut off his ear. Jesus picked up the ear. Can you imagine what was going through their heads? Picked up the ear, stuck it back on his head and healed him. Now he's blown them down and healed an ear. But Jesus stopped Peter and he said, Couldn't I have 12 legions of angels if I wanted them? And he said, but... I must go and do what God the Father wants so that the scriptures that have been prophesying for centuries might be fulfilled. And at that time, Peter realized, we're not going the way that I thought we were. He's not going to fight for himself. And that's when they all scrambled. And they took Jesus bound down across the Kidron Valley again into the city of Jerusalem. Somewhere west of the temple, the temple borders the eastern side of the city. And so they they took him into a, a, a a pre-trial hearing somewhere near where the Jewish council met. When they took him in there, there was the godfather of Judaism, Annas himself. Who's Annas? Well, he had once been the high priest, but the Romans had deposed him 15 years earlier. But ever since then, he kind of held his sons or his son-in-law as puppet high priests under him. And the Romans had actually put in and out of office three of his sons and then his, his son-in-law, Caiaphas. And Caiaphas was the high priest. Now, why 
is Jesus going before Annas? We don't know for sure. We know what he does. See, they, they needed to get time to go grab everybody. They had to have it, a quorum of, se, of the 70 council members to come together in order to have a trial for Jesus. So they needed to buy some time. Maybe that was one of the reasons that he came before Annas first. But there stood Jesus bound before Annas, and Annas began to interrogate him. And they wanted evidence against Jesus because they wanted enough evidence to condemn him to death. This was not a trial in order to find out if he was innocent. This was a trial in order to kill the man. And so Annas starts interrogating him. Tell me about your teachings. We hear a lot of things about you. We hear you speak against the Jewish temple. Jesus said, if you want to know what I taught, ask the people that I taught. I was in synagogues and in this temple court every day teaching. One of the Jewish guards standing next to Jesus felt angry and brave. Jesus, a bound man standing there. And he turned and struck Jesus in the face. And he said, you're not going to talk to the high priest that way, are you? Was Annas really the high priest? No. Jesus winced and he said, if I've said something wrong, you tell me what it was. But if not, why do you hit me? Annas said, tell us more about your teaching. And Jesus just stood there silent. Getting nowhere, they'd given enough time to gather this council. They drug him into the next room. Peter's out in a courtyard with John, and they're warming themselves by a fire. A little girl comes up to him. I think you're one of his followers. May God curse me if I were one of his followers. I am not one of his followers. And a rooster crowed. Remember how Jesus, before the Lord's Supper, had prophesied that before the rooster crows, Twice you will deny me three times. In the trial, they're all gathered there on a big stone set of bleachers. They're a semicircle. They can all see each other. At least a quorum of 70. You know, up in the 70 is their total. And so they're asking Jesus questions. He's not answering. Now, why would he not answer? Most people would answer to get themselves off the hook. Well, first of all, Jesus knows that he's got to die. He's not there to defend himself. He's there to defend you. He's there to die. See? So he's not going to defend himself. But secondly, Isaiah the prophet, 700 years earlier in Isaiah chapter 53. If you've got a Bible, you can look it up. You don't have to, but it's right there, Isaiah 53. Isaiah said, just like a sheep sits before her shearer silent when she's about to be sheared, so when he went before his accusers, he would not open his mouth. And so now that he was in the trial, he would not defend himself. He just stood there silent. They brought up witnesses. Now, according to Jewish law, you had to have two witnesses that agreed exactly with one another to condemn a man to death. They could never find somebody to agree exactly. They tried and tried and tried. And Caiaphas is getting frustrated because this whole thing is going badly. Finally, they get two to agree partly with one another. They both say, Jesus said that he would destroy the temple. Now, that would be blasphemy. But he would raise it again and build it in three days. What do you have to say for yourself? Did you say that, Jesus? Silence. Caiaphas is frustrated because if he can't get them to completely agree, and they haven't, and can't get Jesus to say it himself, where they could all be the witnesses, he doesn't have a trial against Jesus. So he stands up. And he says, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us plainly, are you the Christ, the Messiah of the Jews? They're the Jews, right? And Jesus knows that if he says yes, that's the evidence that they need to condemn him to death. Jesus knows that this is the moment that he himself is going to seal his own fate. And Jesus raises his head and he says, yes. It is as you say. And then he says, words that are reminiscent of the prophet Daniel chapter 7 that talked about Jesus as the Son of Man. Now he'd been using the term Son of Man all along in his ministry, but so did Ezekiel the prophet. They didn't know if that was calling himself God or not. But in Daniel 7, there's this Son of Man that is obviously the Son of God. And, And Jesus says, yes, it is as you say. And you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, sitting in judgment over all of you. 
He's talking about himself. Caiaphas stood up, ceremonially ripped his garment. We don't need any more evidence, delighted. We've got him. That's blasphemy. He's calling himself the Christ. And he jumped down and they jumped down after him like a pack of dogs, embravened by the fact that they're a pack. And they began to spit on him. And they slapped him. And they said, you are condemned to death. Boom, boom, boom. Whooping up on our Savior Jesus. He said, standing there bowed. It was still nighttime. They had some time before a daylight trial could be given. And they could not, according to their own law, condemn someone at nighttime. It had to be dawn or later. And so they decided to take out their wrath in the, the hours that are passing. And so they took a blindfold and they put it around him. They'd done it to others before him and they did it to others after them. They claimed to be the Messiah. They blindfolded him and said, if you're God and you're the Messiah, you can tell us who hit you. Whack! Hit him in the face. Who hit you? Now, he could have told them their grandmother's maiden name. But he stood there silent. And in Isaiah 50, it says that when they spat on him, they also ripped out his beard. 700 years before it happened. So apparently this is the time when they did that also. And beat him on the back. Prophesy. Who is it that's abusing you now? You don't really know, do you? And then they put him in a cell. And they waited. And they got more people that are members of the Sanhedrin to come together. They got him together at dawn. They brought him back out. Bound in front of them and said, tell us. Are you the Messiah or not? Yes, it is as you say. You are condemned to death, they said. Let's take him to Pilate. Now why? I mean, they just had their trial. Why take him to Pilate? Who was that? Pilate was a Roman governor. Kind of a pipsqueak position to be governor over Judea. He'd been appointed there just a few years earlier. And his normal place of residence was on the coastline of the Mediterranean, Caesarea. But Pilate often came to Jerusalem during the Passover because nationalism was at a high during the Passover. And the Jews often would have guys who would try to create a, a revolt against the Romans. Once Pilate, to squelch a revolt, crucified 2,000 men before Jesus' time to prove that Rome would not tolerate a revolt like that. So Pilate was there with soldiers living in the town for the week in a, a, a castle that was on the corner of the northwest corner of the temple. And so... They would take Pilate to the governor who could condemn someone to death. Now, by the way, they didn't want to be the ones to stone Jesus to death because they didn't want the people who loved Jesus to be mad at them. And so they wanted to get the Romans to do the dirty work. And so they take him to Pilate early in the morning. Now, while some of them are headed to Pilate and some are staying back at the Jewish council, Guess who shows up? Judas. He's conscious stricken. He knows that Jesus is innocent of the charges that they've made. And he wants to somehow make up for it. Because sinners who don't know forgiveness try to make up for their sins by the way they apologize. And so he brought his money bag and he came and he found whoever was there in the, the council room. And he came up and he said, I, 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 I have beha- betrayed an innocent man and I want to make it right. Of course, they didn't care because they didn't want Jesus to live. And they said, what is that to us? You go take care of the matter, but we're done. He's already off to see Pilate. Judas couldn't make it right. He couldn't stop. Whatever was going to happen because of his evil deed. Have you ever done something and you couldn't stop the results of it? It's just happened. Yeah. But he wanted to make up for it somehow. So he runs through the temple courts. He gets as close as he can to the court of Israel. And he takes the money and he he throws it. Somehow that doesn't appease his conscience though. 
He's still got guilt all over him. And so he runs out of the temple courts toward the southeast corner and goes to the field where they they throw their trash and burn the bodies of their dead animals. And he gets a rope and he throws it up on a tree and he jumps and he hangs himself trying to pay for his own sins. When Jesus was going to do it for him in just a few hours. But he would not believe That Jesus was the gracious God who'd come to save even someone as evil as Judas who would betray him. And there you now see the most wicked sin of all people. It is not one of the big ten breaking the ten commandments, my friends. It's not immorality or murder. The biggest sin is to not believe that God is gracious. Judas would not believe that. Peter, by this time, has denied Jesus three times. Other people have come to him in that Jewish courtyard and said, aren't you one of his followers? Someone even said it was Malchus's friend. Malchus is the guy that got his ear whacked off. Said, didn't I see you up there on the the mountain with him? And, And Peter calls down curses on himself and says, no. And Jesus looked at him at that moment when they were carrying him out, going toward his cell and... Peter went out and wept bitterly. He believed somehow God might forgive him and he waited for Jesus to die on the cross and to figure it out. Not Judas. Jesus is at Pilate. Pilate comes out. He knows the Jews do not like to come into Gentile homes, especially at a time when they're going to have a high feast because they're afraid they're going to get unclean ceremonially. So he gets his judgment seat, has his servants bring it out, sets it on the porch And he says, I'll meet you out here as you want. He sits down and goes, what's your deal? They bring Jesus in front of him. Now remember, he's been up all night. He's already been beaten. Part of his beard's been pulled out. And Jesus is standing there bound before them. And they said, we brought to you a really bad man. If he were not evil, we would not have bothered you on this Friday morning. Pilate said, what's your charge? He's subverting the people against Rome. In other words, trying to start a revolt. Pilate looks at Jesus. He says, he's telling people not to pay taxes to Caesar. Something that a lot of Jewish teachers struggled with because on the coins of Caesar, there was this thing called Caesar is the son of God. And so they would tell people, you're not supposed to pay taxes to Caesar because that's idolatry. So it's plausible. But Jesus never was that kind of man. He said, give Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God. And then they said, he makes himself to be a king. Now, that's high treason because only Caesar can be king of the people he's conquered. Pilate says, bring Jesus in here away from the crowd, yelling and screaming, accusing him. He brings him into a back room and he says, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my soldiers would fight. But my kingdom is from another place. Pilate thinks, this is not someone who's trying to be a king or subvert the nation. He goes back out and he says, this man is not claiming to be a king. He's innocent of his charges. Oh, yes, he is. He's claiming to be a king and subverting the nation. He started in Galilee and he's been bringing it all the way down here to Judea. Galilee? He started in Galilee? Well, that's Herod's jurisdiction and Herod's in town this week. He likes to come for the festive occasions. He's over in his palace. Take him away to Herod. I don't have to deal with this thing. So they take him away to Herod. They bring him into Herod's room. And Herod says, Oh, all this time I've been wanting to see Jesus because I hear he does miracles and I want him to do one for me. And by my authority, I'm going to command him to do one. So him and his soldiers gather around him and says, Jesus, they're accusing you of being a a, a messiah. But I hear stories that you do miracles. Do one for me. Make that chair go up, maybe, is what he said. Or turn this water into wine the way I heard you did at Cana. Nothing. Just stands there silent. Herod thinks he's not a king and he's not a messiah and he's not a miracle worker. His soldiers say, what do you want us to do? And he goes, he's the king of the Jews. Why don't you put a robe on him? 
So they put an elegant robe on him and they, they bow around him. Hail, king of the Jews. He's all beat up, standing there, bound. Herod goes, you know, I don't want to deal with this. Take him back to Pilate. And they take our Lord back to Pilate. Pilate sees him coming. Sits down on his throne outside on the porch. And he says, Herod says he finds nothing wrong. This man is innocent. And I find nothing wrong with him either. He is not guilty of the charges that you've given. But I'll tell you what I'll do. I will have him flogged. The women must have sighed. And then I'll release him to you. No! Crucify him! He's innocent. I will have him flogged, and then I will release him. And Pilate's hoping that they can satisfy the crowd by the way they beat your Savior. And so they took him to the patio area where Romans got to flog their enemies. And this is a flogging tool. This is a homemade one. Probably more friendly than the ones that they would make. But it usually was a club like this. It had leather straps. And on the end of the leather straps were pieces of metal, glass, bone, rock, beads of bone. And they would, they would tie a person to a post. Or they'd bend them over on a post in the ground. And they'd take their shirt off of them. Sometimes they took off their, every clothing that they had. And then they would beat them. And they would hit them again and again. And you know, someone asked me this week, was it 39 times that they beat Jesus? We don't know. 39 was a Jewish number, though, because by law they could not beat somebody more than 40, and they always wanted to be sure they didn't break the law, so they did it 39. Romans had no laws like that, so they whipped our Lord. Now, the story is, by Josephus the historian, that most people died under the flog because it cut them emaciated them, the shock and the pain, they'd have a heart attack, they'd hemorrhage to death, they would die. We don't know how many times they beat Jesus, but they beat him a lot. Because Pilate had him brought back out. He had Jesus brought back out. He stood him in front of them. But before I leave it out, i got to get it in there. Before the soldiers were done, after they'd flogged him, but done and ready for Pilate to take him, The soldiers hated the Jews. The Roman soldiers and people that were there in Jerusalem didn't like their assignment that much either. And Jews were haughty slaves of the people that conquered them. And so the Romans saw this as an opportunity to humiliate Jesus and humiliate all the Jews. So one of them thought, we'll make a crown for the king. And he got some some thorns and they made a crown and he said, Hail, king of the Jews! And they put a reed in Jesus' hand. No, they put a staff in his hand. They had a reed. And they started beating on Jesus on his crown. And they hit him again and again and again and again. And so now the blood's dripping down and he's been beat up by them and by the Jews. And now Pilate brings him out. And he's bound. And Pilate says, Look at the man. Now what do you think he's trying to say? You've got your pound of flesh. He's almost dead. I'm telling you again, he's innocent. And he says to them, every year to make you happy as Jews, we release one man. And so by my law, I have flogged him and you've got your pound of flesh. I can release him and I will not be guilty before Rome because we do that every year at the Passover. And you will get what you want. And we can be done with this whole matter. Crucify him! Crucify him! He goes, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a choice. And there was a guy that scared everybody. Barabbas, who was known as a murderer. A menace to society. He brings Barabbas out and he goes, Look, I'll give you a choice. You want Jesus, the peacemaker, whom you say is calling himself the king of the Jews, or do you want Barabbas? Barabbas! Give us Barabbas! Somewhere around that same time, Pilate's wife comes over to where he is on his judgment seat, it says, and whispers to him, I had a bad dream that this man, Jesus, is just and right and innocent. Don't go against the gods and and do anything to him. He's already been flogged. Pilate says, well, if I release Barabbas, what do I do with the man you call your king? 
trying to say, well, you're going to embarrass yourselves if we do something to the king of the Jews. We have no king but Caesar. He releases Barabbas. He says, I'm going to tell you again, this man Jesus is innocent. If you let him go, you are no friend of Caesar, they said. Now that struck close to home. Because if word got back to Rome that Pilate let a would-be king go, and they were threatening by that statement to make sure that, the, that Caesar knew that, then Pilate would be in big trouble. That would be high treason, and he could lose his own life. Pilate says, sits down on the, the judgment seat and says, bring me a basin of water. They bring a basin of water, and he washes his hands in the water, and he says, I'm telling you that I am innocent of this man's blood. I do not believe he should be condemned to death. Take him away and crucify him which is probably the most erroneous statement that any judge could ever make in the whole world. But all along the way, you see the Holy Spirit telling the world that Jesus is innocent, right? Pilate's wife, Pilate, okay? Later on at the cross, someone does. God's saying he's not a sinner. There's nothing you can find against him because he was suffering for you and me. There were... um, Two criminals that were waiting on death row. They didn't have human rights quite so down as well as we do now. And Pilate thought, we'll take him out and crucify him with those two criminals. One of the humiliating things the Romans liked to do was to make you carry your cross through the streets. No right to privacy there. They carry their own cross beam. And sometimes the, the upright in the cross beam. We don't know how much Jesus had to carry, but it was a heavy piece of wood for a man who'd been up all night, had nothing to drink or eat, and been beaten. And so they started down a road that now they nicknamed the Way of Sorrows, the Via Della Rosa, out to the western side of the city. Some say it was northwest, some north, some west. It was out there somewhere outside the city wall. To a place they nicknamed the Place of the Skull, Golgotha. Because it's where people die. Death, skull, crossbones. Where are the men? Well, they're not being men. But the women are right behind Jesus on the way of sorrows. And he's struggling to carry the cross. He turned to the women who were weeping. Women who had taken care of his needs, it says, all the way from Galilee to Judea supporting him and his band of followers as he taught. Women who would give their life for him. He turns to them and says, don't weep for me, women. He's suffering under the cross. He says, weep for yourselves because judgment is coming on this city for rejecting the Son of God and just pray that it's not wintertime when they besiege the city because the suffering will be faster and worse than in the spring. They're still crying and following. Jesus falls and he can't get up. Now, Romans had a rule. You can make anyone carry a load a mile if you're a Roman soldier because you had that authority to get the job done. So they look on the sideline, and there's a guy who's coming in from North Africa, Cyrene. His name is Simon. And they say, you come here, carry that cross. Simon picks up the cross and puts it on his shoulders. You know what's interesting? The book of Romans, the book of Romans says, that, there was, that Paul says to greet Alexander and Rufus, who are God's followers with the rest. And one of the gospel writers, Mark, tells us that Simon's two sons were named Alexander and Rufus. And Mark wrote his gospel for the Romans. It's interesting. Can't say 100%. But may very well be that that was the beginning of Simon's conversion to Christ and his children. So Simon carries the cross for Jesus, and they get out to Golgotha, and they lay Jesus down on the cross beam, and the cross beam's on the upright, and then they took spikes. Usually they were not round spikes like I have here. They were, they were more like our big square nails, like you'd see a spike for a, a timber that goes under a railroad track. That's the way they made them. And they took a mallet, and they laid these men down, and they nailed them through their wrists, now, a lot of times you see a picture through his hands, and they bang. 
And, of course, the pain was excruciating. But when they, they would usually go through the small of the wrist because on the weight of their bodies hanging from the crossbeam, it would tear out of their hands if they did it in their hands. And so they bang these into their arms. You can, the men are screaming, right? And, they, and then they put their feet one on top of the other, and they nail it through both feet into the upright. And it sends pain up the limbs and down and back and forth. And every time you move, it creates more pain. And they above Jesus before they set him in the upright. While they're setting the other two up, you can imagine. Ah! And they drop their sticks in the hole. They put a sign above Jesus' head. It says, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Now, some of the couple of the high priests that saw that, they skedaddled off to Pilate back into the city. And they said, you're putting a sign on top of him that says, King of the Jews. Don't you say that. He said, they said, say, he said I was the King of the Jews. And Pilate said, what I have written, I have written. Now, Pilate was upset with them for forcing his hand, but he also was a Roman who hated Jews. And he was showing, this is what Romans do to Jews and people who call themselves kings. So they couldn't get him to take it off. See, they had forced his hand and now they ended up with the embarrassment. So they picked up Jesus' cross and they dropped it in its stand and he's hanging there in pain. Now, most people died of asphyxiation. They did not die on the cross from the blood because these these spikes would keep you from bleeding to death. They died from suffocation because your diaphragm would grow weak and the pain through your limbs would keep you from standing up on that spike because it was so excruciating to have that going through your feet and stand up on it to get a breath. Their diaphragm would grow weak and they'd just get shallower and shallower and shallower in their breath and then they they would die. But healthy men who were crucified usually lasted two to three days. It was 9 o'clock when they put Jesus on the cross in the morning. Men filled with evil hearts that are hurt by men with evil hearts usually don't get converted just because they're suffering. Suffering does not make you righteous. Only God can do that. And so usually when they were crucified, people were used to the way men that were crucified would curse and swear in their pain at the people that were putting them to death. And the two men on either side of Jesus were doing that. And now, around Jesus, there's a group of men, the high priest going, and we've read it in Psalm 22, it was prophesied a thousand years before it happened. He saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God. And Jesus, do you know what he said? His first word from the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He knew they didn't have a clue that they were killing God the Son, the Savior of the world. Forgive them. Love. Now you can imagine what that did to the the thieves on either side, the robbers, the murderers on either side of Jesus. Well, it only did it to one of them. Because suffering does not produce a good man. Only God can do that. And God had struck the heart of one of them. He heard them calling him the Messiah. He knew something about what Messiah was. He saw Jesus having love in the face of evil. He saw the holiness. He knew Jesus had done nothing wrong. And he looked at Jesus from his cross. And he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, what? Today, you'll be with me in paradise. We're going to die today, guys. You are going to heaven. He did not say that to the other man. Because the other man did not believe in him. What is the greatest sin? To not believe in the gracious God who sacrificed his son. When you die, your soul goes to heaven. Just like that if you're a believer. That's one of the verses that we know that teaches us that. Jesus sees John, his disciple, and his mother and some other women standing there within earshot of the cross. And he does an amazing thing. He makes sure John knows that he's to take care of his mother and his mother know that she's going to be taken care of by John. 
Now a sword is piercing through her soul. Simeon had told her that when Jesus was a baby. She's watching her own son be killed in a torturous death, bleeding all over, hanging on a cross, knowing how it's going to end. And he says, John, behold your mother, and woman, behold your son. What an amazing thing to look past the pain and suffering and the, the dismal end that he's coming to, to love his mother that way. And that action covers over every one of you who never loved your mother the way that you should have either. Because that's his active righteousness in place, which God says covers your sins. Twelve o'clock comes. There's darkness over the whole earth. He said, Father, forgive them. He said, woman, behold your son. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise, right? Darkness falls over the earth. It's 12 o'clock and it's dark. People are getting frightened around the cross. Jesus cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. That's his tongue, his Aramaic. You know what it is? It says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm a pastor. I've seen people say through tears when they're suffering, why would God let this happen to me? I've said it. But you know what the theological truth is about suffering for sinners? We never get what we deserve. Not one sinful thought does God want any of us to ever think. Not one selfish thought. Not one lustful thought. Not one word. Not one deed. And yet we have filled our lives with them. Even though we're all here socially acceptable people. But Jesus could say, why have you forsaken me? And it wasn't wrong. Because never once did his mind create a sinful thought. And never once did he speak a sinful word. He was in the depths of hell when he said that. Suffering hell for us so we would never have to. And what's more, since you said Psalm 22 with me, you know that while he was saying why and suffering hell, he was telling us to look somewhere in our Bibles to see the cross. Psalm 22 describes the cross experience, doesn't it? He was tipping us off. What love there is while the man's going through hell. And now darkness for three hours. Whimpering. Don't think Jesus was stoic. He wasn't. He was a man. He cried at Lazarus' tomb. He cried on the cross. Gasping. Yep, it was there too. You ever watch somebody die? Bleeding, pain, suffering. He came to three o'clock. And he said, I'm thirsty. Did you know they had tried to give him a drink, but when they laid him down to nail him to the cross of wine vinegar mixed with myrrh, it was a sedative. It was like taking a huge, stiff cocktail that would make you drunk and help you through the pain. He refused. He wanted to face the full fury of God's wrath for our sins. But now, he said, at the end of that six hours, he said, I am thirsty. We read in Psalm 22 that it says, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth and my throat is parched like a potsherd, like a piece of pottery out under the sun. That's what a potsherd is. It's dry. He's fulfilling prophecy, isn't he? And he needed to quench his throat. Have you ever started to shout and you had a dry throat and you kind of cracked, right? He was about to say something that was very important. And so they gave, they put this sponge and they put it up on a reed and they lifted it up to his face on that, that sponge and they lifted it up to Jesus. They were down low and he bit on it and it went down the back of his throat and soothed his dry throat. And they, they, they took it down and then he said, it is finished. Now, what did he mean? Did he mean, whew, finally, we got through that one? Not hardly. 
If you read John's gospel, he's the one that records this. He says, Jesus knew all the scriptures had been fulfilled that had prophesied for hundreds of years about him. He knew that everything had taken place that needed to take place. And so he said, it is finished. He had fulfilled God's plan that had been in God's heart from eternity. The day that Adam and Eve fell into sin, God and Jesus, the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit had been making this plan to save the planet of our, from our sins. And Jesus said, it is finished. And he also meant the sins are paid in full, all of them. Remember Judas? Who thought he could pay back what he owed God? Nobody can pay back what they owe God. The deed has been done, right? The deeds have been done. And none of us can pay back what we owe God. But Jesus could pay him back. Never sinned. Son of God. Counts for everybody. Father, whatever your will is, he said in the garden, I'll do it. It is finished. I paid the price of everyone's sin. When he was walking around with his disciples, he had told them, I just want you to know something, fellas. He said, nobody will take my life from me. I'm going to lay it down of my own accord. So they could never say, oh, poor Jesus. He laid it down. He was the macho man in charge of everything, the God of the universe. And now he's at perfect peace with the Father. He suffered hell. So after he said it is finished, you know what he said? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he breathed out and refused to breathe in again. And he died. And the ground started shaking. You ever been in an earthquake? And it shook and it shook. Now what happened, they found out later in the city, outside of the city at another place where the tombs opened up. And some people came back to life and started walking through the city. It was dark and the ground is shaking. In the temple, which is up to the, to the east, There's this inner place that separated all people from God's most holy presence. And there's a curtain that divides it. And at the top, it began to tear in the earthquake. And it ripped all the way to the bottom. And everyone could see in. And God was saying what? One fell swoop, the death of Christ. There's no more Jewish sacrifices needed. No more Judaism. Swept it all away. No more guarding God from man. I have paid the price. God the Father is reconciled. He's not mad at anyone anymore. Because He has punished His Son, it's finished. And He's paid the price. God so loved the world. Jesus had told Nicodemus that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. What's the greatest sin? Not believing. What's the greatest gift? The message that creates faith, doesn't it? Makes you believe. There was a Roman guard there that had been watching all of this, and he's changing. (laughs) And the other guys around him helping him. He's called a centurion, a leader of a hundred. And he says, this was the Son of God. Unbelief is a mystery. How in the face of all of this that the Jewish leaders would not come to faith, but they would not. They went to Pilate and they said in the afternoon after three, they said six o'clock is coming when all of us Jews have to be in bed or in our houses. And they said, we don't want that imposter and those people that are Jews, Jewish men. We don't want them up on those crosses because tomorrow is the Sabbath. And we are not going to be able to go out there and take their bodies down. Will you go and have your soldiers make sure they're dead now and they can be buried? Would you take some, like we've seen you do other people, some, some metal rods and break their legs so they can't stand on that spike anymore and they'll just suffocate to death right away? And Pilate says, go ahead and do it. Sends his soldiers. And so they get the command out there to the hill called Golgotha and they start banging on those, those thieves' Legs with metal bars and they're shattering the bone. Ah! Ah! And then they breathe shallower and shallower and they can't stand up and they, they die. And they come to Jesus and the guy's been dead for a little while and they can tell it. 
There's no reason to start wailing on him. But one of them, just to make sure, grabs his Roman spear. <laughs> he sticks him in the side and there's the obvious sign of water and blood mixed together that Jesus is gone. There's these two men that were on the council. They were on the council that condemned Jesus, but they did not consent. They weren't part of the prevailing side. And one of them had kept his faith a secret. His name was Joseph of Arimathea. But Joseph just recently had dug a grave. And Joseph was ready to come out of the closet and let people know he was a believer. And so was Nicodemus, the one who had come to Jesus at night and said, We know you're from God. Nicodemus is the one that first heard the words, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And Nicodemus believed that. And so he and Joseph of Arimathea became unclean because they handled a dead body. And they went to the cross and they took Jesus, pried those spikes out, took him down. Nicodemus was a wealthy man. He brought 70 pounds of spices worth more than a year's wages. And they wrapped his body with spices in the cloth. And the two of them carried this body. And everyone that's among the Sanhedrin is going, (gasps) and they went out to Joseph's tomb and they put the body on the shelf. The women are following that had been there all along and they pushed the rock down the track. And the tomb had never been used until that day. Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 53, 700 years earlier, said he will be assigned a grave with the wicked, but when he dies, he'll go to a rich man's grave. Wow, another prophecy fulfilled. That, my friends, is the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Good Friday is all about. That's what Christianity is all about. He paid for our sins. We have peace with God. Don't be a Judas. Don't try to make up for all of your evil. You can't do it. Come to Jesus and trust in Him. He really is the Savior of the world. God really has paid for everyone's sins. And Easter's coming. When He'll show That God the Father accepted the sacrifice by rising from the dead. The peace of God that passes all understanding. That comes from faith. Will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Amen.